0: Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. We're currently joined by Washington State's Secretary of State, Kim Wyman, She and I met at a conference in Nashville a few months back and had a fascinating conversation about transparency in voting, the critically important nonpartisan nature of supervising elections, and the fact that for four years she was the only Republican to hold statewide office across the entire West Coast. So you could say she knows a thing or two about working across the aisle. Thank you so much, Secretary Wyman, for joining Sanity. Oh, thank you. To kick off the conversation, could you talk a little bit about what your responsibilities as Secretary of State look like?
1: I have four main primary duties that are part of state government, and they include overseeing the corporations and charities filings for any for-profit or non-profit corporation that operates in Washington State. They register with our office and it provide the public with uh, transparent information. I oversee the state archives, which is all of our state's history going back to the territorial days of Washington, and then also the state library. So we have not only a collection of Washington authors and titles, but we oversee specialty libraries like the Washington Talking Book and Braille Library and libraries that are in our state correctional facilities and state hospitals. And the final area, which is probably the most high-profile part of the office, is overseeing the elections for the state of Washington.
0: It's a fascinating combination of rules and responsibilities. What do you what do you love most about what you do?
1: Well, I think the variety. I, that is probably uh, the thing that appeals most to me in this job is that opportunity day to day to be going from topics that are very wide, ranging from. You know, going and talking to the legal women voters about the upcoming redistricting and uh, reapportionment that follows the census, you know, and then uh, a few hours later talking about, um, you know, the uh, upcoming anniversary of women's suffrage in uh, Congress in 2020 and uh, everything in between. I mean, those are both election related, but I can also talk about, you know, our new corporations and charity system that is serving the public better. Uh, by automating uh, some of the activities we do. So it's I like the variety and, and the change from uh, day to day.
0: Hmm. You have done some really interesting work in an era where election security is is an extremely hot topic across the country. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like overseeing that aspect of your job, especially in 2016 when things were heated and Washington State fielded its own attacks attacks from Russia.
1: Uh, Oh, absolutely. It's been an interesting ride. Uh, Our state has kind of always been out in front, uh, I think, when you compare to some of the other states in the country, way out in front on ideas like online registration. Uh, Washington was the second state in the country to Offer online registration to our voters. And the nice thing about that and being kind of out in front is we've had a lot of time with a web presence. You know, we started putting election night results, for example, out on the web in counties and, and on the state in the mid 2000s. So the nice part about that is we have a lot of experience with what normal activity looks like from our external, you know, contacts when when voters try to get in and interact with our system. And in 2016, we started to see activity on our servers that wasn't normal. It just looked a little suspicious. And we saw a couple IP addresses in particular that gave us a reason to think that it might not be um, good. (laughs) So we blocked those IP addresses and we, and this was right in the middle of the summer of 2016. So really kind of in the lead up to the the uh, November election, and we started working with Homeland Security and the FBI. Uh, what was really fascinating about that process, and you know, it continues to this day, is we all kind of ramped up our relationship, if you will, while we were in an active election cycle. And Homeland Security was able to allow our state to have very robust testing and some protocols that they gave to us that would help us enhance our security during that time because President Obama declared elections as critical infrastructure. And President Trump continued that designation. And what that's allowed, not only Washington state, but every state that wants to participate in the country, and I believe all 50 are, it allows us to have access to resources that we just simply couldn't have on our own. Mm-hmm. And I think has really helped helped us strengthen our system. And I know that's true. Across the country, so uh, we were one of the twenty one states that Russia did try to get into, and in two thousand and sixteen and i 'm happy to report that you know about a year later, Homeland confirmed what we knew that they they you know essentially knocked on our doors and windows and tried to get past our security firewalls, but were unable and that was that was good to have that confirmed
0: mm-hmm. you approach this from a non partisan stand- standpoint standpoint what's interesting to me about the role of Secretary of State is it is one where in most states you run as a Republican or a Democrat, but the majority of the the responsibilities are nonpartisan in nature, especially when it comes to to monitoring elections. And and you have really developed a reputation in the state of Washington as someone who has operated above board. And I I should note for our listeners that my bias is I worked for Kathy McMorris Rogers, who is a congresswoman from Washington State. When it comes to something that is so critically important, but is also important in a very politically polarized era, how have you led in such a nonpartisan way, especially just in regards to such an important topic like this?
1: Well, I think that I've been very fortunate and blessed in my career to have a couple of things pivot right at the right time. So I started in the elections... Arena Elections Administration in 1993. So you know now, gosh, 25 years later, um, still here. And I started as the elections director in Thurston County, which is where Olympia is. And I learned really quickly that I needed to be very nonpartisan in how I did my day-to-day job. And my boss was the elected county auditor, was a Republican, and um, I, I just operated in that that sphere of. I have to create credibility by being nonpartisan in how I do my job, and I have to make the most liberal, progressive, left-wing, whatever moniker you want on the, on the left, Democrat, and the most conservative right-wing Republican, and every voter in between, I have to make sure that they have confidence in the results we're posting, that those voters believe that our results reflect the way people voted and that no one had their finger on the scale, and that there was a really solid balance between access and security. And I think I learned those lessons in the trenches conducting elections in that nonpartisan role. And when uh, my boss was elected Secretary of State, Sam Reed, in 2000, I was approached to run for county auditor. And because it was a Republican holding the office, it's a political nominating process that you have to go through. And I put my name in the hat To do that. And um, I had close friends who came up to me and said, you're a Republican? (laughs) And they were really surprised. They didn't know. And and that was at one of those pivotal moments where I realized that I had done my job well because even my close friends didn't know my political leanings. And that is really the foundation that I've had once I was elected as county auditor and then secretary of state is that once I stepped through the, the office door, I have to operate in a nonpartisan manner, even if my party gets mad at me, even if people don't want me to act that way. I have to because I have to instill confidence in every voter, not just the people in my party.
0: Hmm. I wish that there were more of you in our in our world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I do, too. I, I worry um, a great deal in, in watching the influence that social media has had, and particularly as these these races, um, and maybe it's always been this way, I don't know, but you look at some of the county election officials who have to run for office and secretaries of state who run for office, and they get pushed into a box where they, on the campaign trail, operate in a really partisan manner. And they are driving either a very hardcore security agenda, or they are driving a really hardcore access agenda. And when they get elected, they don't know how to shut that off. And it really is to the detriment of the people they represent, I think. And it doesn't matter if they're Democrat or Republican, Um, when they start acting in that partisan manner, people start to lose confidence. And, And I think that we talk a lot about cybersecurity in, in this realm, and we talk a lot about the threats to our election system. But I'll tell you, I think the greatest threat in 2019, maybe secondary to, to cybersecurity, but the greatest threat to our election system, quite frankly, is partisanship. Mm-hmm. Um, it, people that are counting ballots, people that are charged with overseeing the conduct of elections have to rise above partisanship when they do their job. And, um, and, and I'm not taking a swing at either side. I think both sides have examples of being culpable and public confidence suffers. And that is what's at risk. If people don't believe that our election results are credible and accessible and fair and secure, then we've lost democracy. We've lost that belief in, in the foundational elements of, of our, um, You know, democratic process and our representative form of government, and that's what's at stake, and that's what concerns me when people get uh, you know overly partisan in doing their job.
0: Well, when you lose faith in in a system that is supposed to act in the best interest of all people, not those with an R or a a D attached to their names, which which we are seeing in you know at least in, in specific incidents, it it is when you lose that faith and trust. That's a really difficult thing to to earn back. I I am thinking of the gerrymandering, or rather anti-gerrymandering cause in Michigan. It attracted people from the middle, the far right, the far left, because people wanted to create and establish a more fair voting process in, in their state. And I think all people want that. And in that spirit, you've worked with people consistently across the aisle, both in Washington state and outside of Washington state, and you hosted a, a Reddit conversation, an AMA with uh, the Secretary of State from Minnesota, Steve Simon, who is a Democrat. Uh, I'd love to hear just a little bit about how that idea came to be, and what what that experience was like.
1: Oh, it, it was a it was really fun. Uh, Steve Simon and I co chair the National Voter Registration Day uh, efforts. That every year there is a, an actual National Voter Registration Day, and it's coordinated by. A, n- a number of nonprofit organizations that, that oversee the work and um, we're kind of the co-chairs that, you know, just lend that bipartisanship to it. And, you know, I think that I really admire the work that uh, Secretary Simon does because he, he's cut from a very similar cloth as I am that, you know, yes, we're partis- partisanly elected and he's a Democrat and I'm a Republican, but, you know, I don't think it's lost on anyone. The experiences that Washington and Minnesota had in close, High profile elections. You know, they came in different years and different races. But in 2004, Washington State had the closest governor's race in the history of the country. And a few years later, Minnesota had a very close U.S. Senate race that decided the Senate and who had control. And in both the cases, the similarities are striking. We had about the same number of ballots cast, about three million. The end result was separated by about 130 votes in both cases and the scrutiny that both states went under through that process was unlike anything I've ever been through and would never wish upon my worst enemy. Um, But I think when you go through that, and Secretary Simon wasn't in office when it happened, but he certainly lived through it, you realize how fragile that confidence is. And, you know, now 15 years later in my state, I still have voters who, you know, 50% 50 of my state believes that the governor was elected and the other half believes the election was stolen and you can't convince the other side, either side otherwise. And I would like to be bipartisan when I talk about these things. Minnesota had the same experience. And so when you go through that, I think it really puts a fine point on why it's so important to operate in that non- non-partisan state, uh, space so that people can have confidence even in a really close election.
0: In that vein, you have been a real proponent for both mail-in ballots and paper ballots, as as the conversation on voting turns to using technology in different ways. And I'm originally from Florida, so of course I'm fairly familiar with a guy named Chad. Um, <laughs> we all are. <laughs> um, why is it that you that you feel that that those are the safest bets when it, especially when it comes to these really close elections.
1: Oh, sure. Well, I think I knew it in the nineties when I was working in the space and, and technology was starting to take off in ways that, um, is really sexy, you know, and, and you had vendors out there, you know, peddling goods about how great touchscreen voting would be. And we can get rid of paper and we can make everything, you know, electronic and we can make it easy. Um, about that time, you had the presidential election that you're referencing where the entire country's uh, focus went to Florida and they again had a very close race and, and you had people looking at paper ballots. And I think my takeaway from that experience, also being a punch card county at the time and, and understanding how that worked on the back end, um, is that you know, we can each look at a, a piece of paper, we can each look at a ballot, and you and I can have very different interpretations of what we think the voter meant, but there's something physical to argue over. And we saw it in Florida in 2000, we saw it in my state in 2004, that we might disagree, but there's a physical, tangible item we can go to and argue over. Now you take that same emotional, heated election contest and environment where, the stakes are really high. No one is rational. No one is logical. And now you're going to argue over code. You're going to argue over computer code. Over you know, let's look at the electronic audit trail. You can't you can't get anyone to have confidence in that. And that's what's at risk. And so I have felt this way since 2000 that we should always have a paper ballot to go back to because it's easier to convince people that it's legitimate. And Right now, I think across the country, there are five states that have touchscreen balloting as their only source of elections, and I think they're hard to defend. We saw it in the Georgia um, governor's race, and um, again, a close election, and and I would venture a guess that a large portion of that state doesn't believe that the governor was legitimately elected because of the touchscreens, and the rest of the state believes it was fine, And, and that's not good for the health of our democratic institutions.
0: You've worked with Governor Inslee, Governor Washington, uh, on a mail-in ballot initiatives, and you've also worked with him on a big student voter registration drive challenge this past cycle. Um, and a, a, an example of working across the aisle or to, to get more people involved in, in voting. Over the years, what has that relationship been like? and just in general relationships working with generally Democrat governors in Washington state? You
1: know, it, it's been positive and it's it's always a challenge because, again, just as I have pressures from my side of the aisle, I know that Governor Inslee has pressures from his. And so, you know, leading into the 2018 session of the legislature, we knew that the Democratic Party had control of the House, Senate, and the governor's office. And there were a handful of I wouldn't say radical bills, but bills that would be instituting things like same-day voter registration, where any voter could come in up until 8 o'clock election day and and register and cast a ballot, to automatic registration, where people who've proven citizenship as part of a governmental transaction could be registered to vote, to pre-registering our future voters, um, our 16 and 17-year-olds. And there were some other ones as well, the Washington Voting Rights Act. These bills are very emotional for people on both sides of the aisle. And uh, as we went into that session, my staff and I knew that the Democratic Party had the, had the votes to pass them. So we had a choice. We could fight tooth and nail and, and be that, um, you know, that uh, Republican that's just challenging all of the things that are bad about those bills, in our view or we could be part of the solution. And, you know, again, kind of going back to principles that I operate under, I think my job is to represent the state and what's in the interest of all voters and all constituents in the state. So we, uh, we dropped versions of all three of those or all five of those bills, um, in that session knowing that none of our bills would advance because I'm a Republican and they wouldn't uh, give us those wins but it gave us a platform to work with uh, not only the members of the legislature and the governor's office but staff in in those offices and we were able to improve the language that ended up in those final bills uh, we worked very closely with the county auditors for example to help draft legislation that would be workable in the counties because they're the ones who actually conduct the elections. And um, you know, I was pleased at the end result that we had bills that were better. And in 2019, one of the challenges that the governor and I partnered on was uh, prepaid postage. Uh, we had a situation where King County, where Seattle is, was going to pay for the postage return of all of the ballots of their voters. And I knew that that was going to be Problematic because it would be treating voters in different parts of the state differently, and that's never good. So uh, we partnered with the governor's office to find the money to have a short-term fix for the 2018 cycle, and then I said 2019. I apologize. It was it was a 2018 cycle, and and we did. And then in 2019, we passed legislation together to uh, to make that permanent across the state for all elections. So you know, I th- I think that those partnerships are challenging, because I'm sure that Governor Ensley was getting pressure from his constituents and his party members that we don't want to uh, to make the secretary of state look good because she's not in the right party. But, you know, sometimes public policy has to trump partisanship. And I think that that's what happened in those cases. And, I, and I'm proud of the outcomes of those bills and that legislation that passed. And I think it's it's going to move our state forward in a positive way.
0: Really, really interesting Um, (laughs) and and, and definitely easier said than done. That is uh,
1: always, always.
0: (laughs) If you had a magic wand to improve one thing in the realm of voting, Washington state in the United States, what would it be?
1: Uh, I think if I had a, a magic wand, it would just be the consistency factor that the way that states operated would be more consistent across the country. And that um, when particularly for voters who move from one state to another, that their experience is going to be the same. I think that one of the the big challenges for uh, election administrators across the country is our differences. And I think as a country, we're moving closer to that, but it's still going to take uh, time to get us to where we're more uniform across the country.
0: Mm. You spoke earlier a little bit about the importance of just rising above partisanship for the sake of the country. Who do you admire most, whether it comes to voting or just in general, leaders who are really doing that?
1: <laughs> well, I, I think there are many, many examples of those types of leaders. And for me, my personal I have two. I have a a short list of five, but two modern era, um, one that's with us, one that is not. The first one is, I think, on a congressional level and and someone that I have tried to emulate as an elected official is Jennifer Dunn, who served in Congress uh, in Washington State State District. And, um, you know, prior to that, she had been the, the state party chair for the Republican Party in Washington. But what I admired about her is the way that she understood having political power. And, and she was, you know, fortunate enough to be in the majority uh, when we had a Republican president and and been able to do some, you know, to be able to make some legislation happen because of that. And I think was good still at working across the aisle and working with, with people in the Democratic Party to try to make it better legislation. And the second person is uh, my predecessor, Ralph Monroe. He served as Secretary of State for 20 years. And I think that Maybe it was a combination of his style and his time in office, but he really taught me the value of building relationships, not only with members of your own party, but across the aisle. And, and again, that we're here to make good policy for the entire state and not just for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but for everyone that lives here. And I think that those are the lessons that I try to take to heart and always remember that even if you have... A majority, which I wouldn't know what that looks like, but I'm sure that someday I might. Um, <laughs> that you know, that that you you can't just shove things down people's throats because you can. You you need to still try to keep that idea of bipartisanship alive and and try to make good policy.
0: Too often, I I feel like the word bipartisan is used almost as a uh, a talking point that talking the talk and not walking the walk, and I think that. Mm-hmm. In a role like yours, and in a state like yours, you have you walk the walk. Thank you. I am. I really am very curious. It's not quite related to most of most of the conversation, but in terms of the the part of your role where you're overseeing the libraries and, and books in a couple of different state-run uh, institutions, what mm-hmm. what is the most interesting thing about doing that?
1: Oh, it's, it's one of the more powerful parts of the office, actually. Um, so I'll compartmentalize it, but on the, the Washington Talking Book at Braille side, we have customers and patrons, we call them, um, across the state. And these are oftentimes people who either have low vision or no vision, or possibly um, they have a, a disability that doesn't allow them to read printed text. And we, because of, of Federal funding and support, we have the opportunity to send books to our patrons in a format that they can read, mm-hmm. and for some of for a large swath of those patrons, that that might be their only connection to the outside world. And you know, we change lives because we can put books and information in their hands, and they can use it and enrich their lives. So that that is just powerful, and being able to, to help people in that way is just really rewarding. And on the other side, um, for our you know the the state. Correctional institutions, our state prisons, and our two state hospitals, you know, these are very specialized populations that just need access to information and and learning. And uh, when you look at, for example, the amount of people who are incarcerated who are illiterate, Mm. that's part of the problem. You know, if you can imagine in your world, if you couldn't read, how would you function? And so the librarians in those institutions just do a, an amazing job of helping, helping the inmates, you know, see that they have options and they can learn and they can advance their lives. And then hopefully we're helping them transition back into the, you know, into the real world in a way that they can be successful. And, and we have these great partnerships with libraries across the state. We just started mm-hmm. a program, in fact, where um, upon release, the, the people who have been incarcerated are given a library card into the community that they are going to be released in their home community. So Spokane, for example, mm-hmm. library system, they get a library card. Now they, ca- they have an anchor in their community. They have a place where they can go and use a computer to look for a job and, and start getting back and being a contributing member of society. And I think that that's, again, really powerful work. If, if we can help reduce recidivism, Mm-hmm. By giving these people something to, you know, advance their lives, that's powerful, and that's it's an honor to do that work, and I'm really um, proud of and and humbled to work with the the folks that do that work every day.
0: Mm, that's incredibly powerful. I just learned that Washington University in St. Louis uh, just graduated its first class of incarcerated individuals this this year during graduation season and it's just really encouraging to see different partnerships that I think are are getting more attention and, and interest and respect locally and nationally trying to enrich every person's life, which I think is just incredibly encouraging and, and the, the kind of thing that people listening to Sanity are excited about because we all we all need a little more of that in not uh, <laughs> In our world today, definitely. And, and that brings us to our last question, which we ask every guest, which is, "What are you most optimistic about right now today?" What
1: am I most
0: optimistic about?
1: I I think the next generation. I have uh, I have two. I I don't even know what they are. They're not extras. I don't. They, I don't know if they're millennials. I don't know. They're they're both in their mid to late twenties. My son and daughter, and I look at the prospects that they have in front of them. They're, you know, first of all, just comfortability with technology. And, you know, this generation, oh my goodness, they are going to knock it out of the park. You know, they're thinking of things in ways that have changed society already. I mean, you look at the disruptive technology of everything from Airbnb to Uber to uh, Amazon. This is just their norm and they expect it. And so I'm optimistic because they're going to take everything places that we can't even imagine right now. And where my optimism really kind of rests is that I know that as they get older, they're getting more civically engaged. I've been doing elections for 25 years, and that 18 to 25-year-old group is still difficult to get engaged and and enthused, except, you know, in a presidential election when they get really fired up. But I know that as they move from 25 to 30, they're starting to get engaged, and and they're going to be hopefully lifelong voters and, and be civically minded and, and engaged in uh, selecting leaders. So I, I'm optimistic that we're going to move forward in a positive way because of them.
0: Well, thank you so much, Secretary Wyman, for your time and, and for joining us. Oh, you're
1: welcome. It was a pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me on. Thank you.